for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. My name is Anna. And I'm Sam. Today we are covering kind of, we're two-thirds of the way through the Bad Batch Season 2. So we're covering Season 2, Episodes 9 and 10, The Crossing and Retrieval. These ones form a nice little arc, so let's get into it. Yeah. Sam, are you ready to talk about child labor? Uh, with tabs, notes, and annotations, Oh yes. my God. This is why I love you. Amazing. <laughs> okay. We start off in The Crossing, Season 2, Episode 9 of The Bad Batch, and we had kind of thought that the events of last week would mark a turning point for The Bad Batch. They lost Echo to a higher cause. He went with Captain Rex to start freeing clones from the Imperial overreach. He wants to go bop them in the head to jiggle loose their Order 66 chips. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> Who wouldn't? But uh, at the start of the crossing, the Bad Batch is back to their bad old game of running jobs for Sid. So this episode starts with Western guitar music as we come over the planet of Space Utah. <laughs> okay, I was going to say Space Arizona. <laughs> Yeah, they roll up to this amazing slot canyon planet that just looks like the best part of Arizona. Sid has a mining plot there. She wants them to extract some ipsium, more like lorem ipsium. Or oopsium if you drop it, because <laughs> yeah. it's extremely volatile, the same as a primed thermal detonator. Incredible. They find one good chunk of it way in the back corner of the mine, and Omega has the smallest hands, so they send her up there to get it out. She has to, like, slurp it out of the crystal geode with a syringe. But they're a man down, remember? So now that Echo is gone, Wrecker's the only one on lookout duty, and while he's looking the other way, some desert traveler comes by and steals the marauder. So that's not great. Not great. Not ideal. Uh, although besides Omega, it feels like no one is really that concerned about getting the ship back. They're focused on getting to the next town over, which is 40 kilometers through the desert. Through these slot canyons, and there's a storm a-coming. And as they are making the crossing, they're absolutely besieged by trouble. First, there is a stampede from some intergalactic space deer, and then there is a lightning storm, and then as they're fleeing the lightning storm, they run into another mine, the wind picks up the Ipsium case, flings it against the mine entrance, and kaboom, they are entombed in this mine to bring back last week's, two weeks ago's episode. So now they're trapped. Omega, by the way, is still very upset about losing both Echo and the Marauder, mm -hmm. her brother and her home. And Tech is just not being very helpful this episode. <laughs> he tells her the Bad Batch existed before Echo and it will continue to exist now that he's gone and Omega loses it. She stalks off deeper into the mine. Hashtag relatable. This is 100% what I would do. Mm -hmm. But as she's back there in a side shaft, she finds a million more Ipsium deposits in the wall. 
like this entire huge vertical shaft that's just full of a rich Ipsium deposit. So the Bad Batch sends Tech back there to apologize. And together they decide to fill up all of their spare vials with this really great Ipsium that Omega found. But her little noodle arms can't reach the wall to fill up the last vial. And she falls into the darkness and Tech dives after her. Just like a bottomless pit. She falls, he dives after her. That's love. That's amour. (laughs) They both fall into this underground river and they get yeeted by a waterfall into a beautiful glowing underwater cave. Which apparently has a huge Ipsium deposit underneath it to make it glow. I know, right? They need to come back for that one. And there's a crack in the wall and they can see sunlight through it. So they get Hunter and Wrecker down there with the vials of Ipsium that Omega mined. They use one of them to blast the cave open They emerge into a beautiful Arizona sunset. They finally get to the next spaceport after walking presumably another 10 miles. If not more, yeah. Good news. There is a comms array. They can get a call out to Sid. Bad news. Sid has a chronically bad attitude and is not willing to come pick them up. And so they are stranded in Sedona with... (laughs) Just some explosive goo and a couple of ration bars. So what happens in retrieval? We cut immediately to retrieval season two, episode 10. We're still on space Utah and they're pulling together a speeder skiff and Wrecker is just despondent. He's like, I'm hot. I'm bored and I'm starving. D Bradley Baker ate those lines. They were so good. But Omega realizes that despite the fact that the Marauders had its transponder turned off, she can still track Gonky. And she tracks him down to his new current owner, (laughs) Benny the Kid. Benny the Kid! Oh my God. So Benny the Kid is about 10, has purple hair. He's at least 14. Yeah, maybe a very malnourished 14. So we cut to the Marauder pulling into Mako's Mining Emporium and Hole in the Ground. Did you know it's called Mako Town? That's horrible. Yeah. So Benny is really excited because he finally brought something and he'll be top earner this month. And he brings the ship to Mako. We're introduced to Mako, who's an unidentified alien who's more machine than person, who's fat and evil and surrounded by droids. So he has this bunch of ragtag kids who are kind of in... Sort of an indentured servitude relationship where they mine Ipsium for him. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of selects the top earner for the quarter and they get to have one bowl of soup. And then the rest of the leeches, the other kids, have to fight over a singular other bowl of soup. So we see that later. But first, the Bad Batch needs to show up. So they get the skiff working. They track down Gonky. And then they proceed to hunt down Benny, and he's like, I am a child. And they just, they beat him up and take his lunch money, and they're like, take us to our ship. Wrecker clotheslines him across the collarbone, and he goes down like a sack of potatoes. Well, he's trying to run away again, right into Omega's bow. And he's like, okay, you got me. So they're going to sneak into this underground mining facility, and the only way that's unguarded is in through the smokestack. And so they have to climb up the smokestack. They have exactly 60 seconds to get down this thing before it belches another flame burst. Plenty of time, Omega says. Uh, 
Hunter does great until a droid guard comes in and specs and he has to beat up the droid guard and he makes it through the door with literally a quarter second to spare. Honestly, iconic. <laughs> <laughs> Benny's like, you guys definitely aren't Ipsia miners. <laughs> no. And Omega's like, nope, you stole the wrong ship, buddy. <laughs> we cut to Mako, who is gluttoning as a verb in his lair. He's got like a normal office-sized room, and there's food on every available surface, and he's just snurfing it down as fast as he can sloppily. And then he goes out and shows that the top earner will get food and everyone else doesn't. And so Benny and Omega are sneaking in to get the shield code so they can escape to the ray shield at top. Meanwhile, the rest of the Bad Batch is working on the ship. And we see not only does Benny not get top earner despite bringing in a ship, it goes to Drake, who is a slightly older boy. But also we see the, the food split. And so now Benny is grouchy, but he did pocket Drake's uh, credentials to get into the shield room. So they get into the control room. Omega starts copying down the info for the ray shield so tech can hack in. And also gives Benny a snack, a granola bar, because, and Benny, we've seen earlier, is starving to death. So she's hacking it, but Benny presses a button, and that button is a silent alarm. So he betrays her. Womp womp. Meanwhile, a bunch of youths, miscreants, show up at the Marauder and they're like, hey, uh, what are you guys doing here? And Hunter's like, we're working for Mako, question mark? And the kids just run off. So we end up in a standoff. Omega has just been captured and she is about to get dropped into the pit. They can't use the guns because it'll set off the Ipsium. Wrecker and Tech are pointing guns at Mako, and Hunter is sneaking around. And here comes the action sequence. While Omega was up in the shield room, she showed she downloaded everything into her iPad, and she grabs the profit reports, which show that Mako, despite saying that he's very poor, is in fact exceedingly wealthy. She gives that to Benny, and as Mako throws Omega off the cliff. Hunter Tarzan swings to rescue her. Benny gives this pad to Drake and all the teens turn on Mako and start getting ready to club him down. They come after him with spoons, which is honestly like kind of intimidating. It is. Mako, despite the fact that he is, you know, seems pretty scary, actually floops himself over the railing. He booms him and then he tries to grab Be Benny reaches down to try to rescue him and he grabs Benny's hand with his robo claw and says you're coming with me and the kids rescue Benny and Mako falls to his death we reach resolution and now the miners are, have a youth union and they're all going to split the proceeds evenly and the bad batch is going to fly off Omega is still really upset right the mm -hmm. casual cruelty of this episode really got to her she's like the Empire is not the only threat. There are so many people like Mako out there. And Tech says, that's true, but there are a lot of people like us out there too. And then they swoop away into the sky. Ta-da! Ta-da! And hopefully they get some more Ipsium. I always think when we do like adventures like this and the heroes are trying to make their way and like just earn enough money to get to the next thing, you can't give them too much money. I'm thinking like a dungeon master, though. I know. I think that's why they have to blow up one of the vials to get out of the secret underwater grotto. So then I guess they presumably were bringing like four to five of them back to Sid. Maybe nine. 
and she probably wanted one. So hopefully they get paid. But Sid is in their poor graces now because she was extremely rude. She wasn't even going to rescue them until Tech called in all of these favors. She's like, remember when I almost died to clear out your debts to your former boyfriend? And remember when... We beat up Roland Durand and the Pikes for you to get your bar back. And so it's like, fine, I'll rescue you in three days. <laughs> Brutal. Mm-hmm. I just, I cannot get over the landscape of these episodes has me dying. Someone on the Bad Batch art team clearly took their two weeks of PTO and went to the Rocky Mountain West and was like, I'm literally going to put Sedona in this episode. We're in Arizona. So I have some safety things here. First of all, if you are in Slot Canyon country, which is sort of the northern end of the Colorado Plateau and some of the southern end, so really just anywhere within 100 miles of the Four Corners. You should remember Sam is a geophysicist. Okay, continue. Also, I grew up there. Okay, continue. If there is a rainstorm coming, you don't try to outrun water that's coming at 100 miles an hour. You climb up. So if you are in a canyon and it is raining, go up, not down. Thank you. This has been uh, a post sponsored by Gravity. <laughs> Do not try to fight us. <laughs> For real. My gosh. Oh my gosh. That being said, if I fell down a slot canyon cave into a river and got ejected by waterfall into a glowing underwater cavern, I would have thought I had died and gone to heaven. This is like my dream. It is very magical. I can't even begin to imagine the geology that would cause something like this, but fun space geology. Maybe these uh, Ipsium crystals are like, because they say it's fossilized quartz, which makes no sense, but maybe the Ipsium is like, being soaked into the crystal as the planetary water table shrinks or something like that. I think it made for impeccable vibes, and that's what I'm going with. I love, love just the iconic views of the Southwest. This is like Roadrunner versus Coyote territory. Yes, yes. And it made for the very fun slapstick comedy of like, oh, we're running around and then all of a sudden, boom, space antelopes. Like everything's just very fun. It reminded me a little bit of how in The Phantom Menace, they needed this same Utah, Arizona topography to Mm -hmm. create pod racing and to have these caverns where people can pop out of nowhere. But they really were able to go whole ham in this episode because it was animated. And it was just the four corners of the U.S. on steroids, like yeah. beauty steroids. So what's interesting to me about that is also that the Colorado Plateau specifically has in mineable qualities and quantities, like basically every single element that you can mine. Oh. And that's because this type of plateau does cause that. And you never get mines where the land is actually quite nice, you know? Yeah, I th- And okay, so maybe we should back up just for a moment and say Sam and I are based in Colorado. Sam has lived his entire life here. I have lived here for over 10 years now. So Mm -hmm. like maybe this is why we're twigging onto the topography so much. But what I also love is that setting these episodes in this iconic vista also gives you – it gives you the beautiful light side and it also gives you the dark side, which is the abandoned – mining aspect Mm -hmm. of setting something out in like a frontier town. Yeah, yeah. The boom and bust cycle of mining towns is kind of dark. And the other bit that's funny to me 
So in the first episode, they go into this mine. The mine is completely played out. And then they randomly end up at a different mine and just happening to go down a side at it. Omega just happens to see a line of light that happens to be the spot that they missed. Right. And even with all their space technology, you can still miss these massive Ipsium deposits by just millimeters. I know. I think that is so cool. I also love that you got to really play up the Mad Max aesthetic with all of the mining kids. Like they wear these gas masks and they've got neck tattoos and they're (laughs) grungy and starving. And I love that aesthetic. I was super into it. It was kind of punk. It was punk, although the story is Dickensian. This is Oliver Twist. I'm embarrassed to say I'm not familiar with Oliver Twist. So tell me, tell unpack that for me. Okay. So the part that matters is that Oliver Twist, the, the character, was a thief who worked for an older thief. This is also the sort of the backstory of the Lies of La Clamora story, right? Where you're like a child thief, but you work for an adult thief and it's like a crowd of pickpockets. You know what it reminded me of was the movie August Rush. <laughs> I've seen that one. Okay, it's got Freddie Heimer in it and Robin Williams. And he, Robin Williams runs a child gang of like musician pickpockets and he sometimes throws them a pizza. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same story over and over again of having this like adult leader of a child gang. And that is what Marco is and all of his little gang of thieves. Because that's what Benny says he is. He's like, I'm a thief, not a miner. I don't want to be working in the mines. So maybe we should talk about Mako and the kids. So I really wanted to know what species Mako was, and I just could not find it. He is actually undefined. StarWars.com says they created Mako especially for this episode, but they haven't given his species a name. The important thing to know is that he slobbers when he talks, and he's got this wet breathing, and he is foul. He is foul. He is Maybe his species are particularly skinny because he's like, you know— For a a modern American, he'd be on the heavy side, but maybe for his species, he's just morbidly obese because he is like, he's got like a big belly. He's like a diseased albino Bowser. Okay. Yeah. Can you see it? Yeah, I can. Good. Excellent. I'm proud of that one. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting to me is that the notes of this episode, similar to the season two season premiere, are very much off of some Mass Effect 1 vibes. Oh. There's a there's a particular level in Mass Effect 1. Uh, there's a lot of copy-paste in that game where they just like take several art assets and they just kind of rearrange them. And there's one of them where you're like, oh, hey, we're going to go to a random planet. We're going to explore it. We're going to go down in this uh, mine. And sure enough, our ship gets stolen and our tank that we drive around and gets stolen. We have to find another way out. And we're on this red desert planet with canyons and the doors to enter them are the same. Wow. And also Mako species looks like something out of Mass Effect. I'm going to be honest. I thought he was resuscitated Admiral Trench back from the dead first because you pan up from his cybernetic arm slowly up his bloated, distended body. And I was like, did they zombify and albinoify Admiral Trench? They did not. That would have been cool. 
Well, there is a separatist connection because Benny says that this mine was part of the techno union Mm -hmm. and then it fell apart and Mako's holding them together. But that lying that Mako is doing the whole time that he's making good money and he's feeding his people a pittance to keep them working for him and he's playing them off of each other is horrible. I was trying to put my finger on what this arc reminded me of and I wasn't able to quite get there Because I think this arc touches on so many iconic Star Wars themes. There were so many different references, even just from the prequel era, that I could almost pinpoint, but not quite. So let me talk through a couple of them. Mm -hmm. One of the first ones that I thought of was actually from Tales of the Jedi. And it's when Qui-Gon and Dooku go to that village full of starving people and the senator's son is like keeping all of the profits from their land and making the villagers starve. The senator is. They've captured the senator's son. Yeah. 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 So that was kind of what I was thinking of. I was trying to put my finger on a Clone Wars arc because retrieval is about making an oppressed people, these mining kids, these children love the cage that they're in Mm -hmm. and not seek to get out of their cage. And at first I was thinking it might be the Anakin injured arc with the Luremen. Who are pacifists who are willing to sacrifice themselves so that they don't betray their ideals while they're being used as a weapon testing ground by... um, who was that guy? It was Locke Durd. Locke Durd, played by George Takei at his most George Takei. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so this was back in season one of The Clone Wars. Oh wow. Is where we got the only Ayla Sakura arc of the entire Clone Wars. Rip. And there's a, there's a tribal elder, the dad. And, I mean, they look like lemurs from Madagascar. And he basically parlays their freedom into ostensibly peace with Locke Durd and the separatists. Mm -hmm. But his son is like, you just bartered our lives so that we can be a weapons testing ground for the separatists. And his dad is like, yeah, but it was worth it because now we have peace. So that was like close. Mm -hmm. But I actually think what I was thinking of was the Ahsoka hunted arc. Very much so, where you have those three youngling kids who have very adult voices who are like, just okay with being hunted now. They've lived in the forest being hunted for so long that they are like mean and cruel to each other and to Ahsoka. And they've lost hope. They've lost hope. Ahsoka gets catapulted in as a Padawan with training and they're younglings who never made it to Padawan. And they wake up in the morning and they're like, okay, it's time to go on the run from the Trandoshans who Mm -hmm. are hunting us down for sport. And Ahsoka's like, you're okay with this? Yeah. And I think that that's what tweaked my memory most about this arc of the Bad Batch. But there was something completely original that I didn't have a Star Wars frame of reference for, which is how much the kids love and look up to Mako. So that is interesting because it is a dark alternative to the way Omega is looking up at Echo. Yeah, well, and her entire Bad Batch family. Yeah, because the children, the the little Ipsium thieves, they've been put in this position where the only thing that matters to them is food. They're very like driven, and so their entire risk-reward structure has been rewritten for Mako. And Mako is lying to them, which 
you know, adults can do to children to create a completely false narrative to them. Yeah. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, they're on step one. Do you have what you need to survive? Mm -hmm. And they don't. I mean, Benny finds a half-eaten dusty ration bar on the floor of the Marauder, and he can't believe how much food that is. Yeah. It's like a Nature Valley granola bar. Mm -hmm. Although it's like a whole ration bar. But yeah, they're... I mean, and so that's like pretty just uh, Disney villain stuff, because like if you're having people mine for you, you actually need to give them food. When Benny comes back, he's like, I brought this ship. And Mako's like, well, you really screwed up because I'm going to have to part it out. So they start taking it apart. I'll let you keep the droid. And here's your water ration. And then Mako drinks half of a water bottle and gives the other half to Benny. It's really... It is hyperbolic, but I think what scares me is that it doesn't actually feel that unrealistic. No, no. I mean, it's the uh, the adult leader of child thieves playing the thieves against each other is an old idea. What makes it interesting to me and what led into my line of research was the mining side of things. Mm. So I started researching the Colorado and West Virginia Coalfield Wars of the 19-teens and 1920s. Is that where the West Virginians, like, unionized and adopted communism? So in West Virginia, uh, this is, so the first one was the Colorado Coalfield Wars, and that ended in the Ludlow Massacre. I actually have an entire book of poetry about the Ludlow Massacre. You don't know about it unless you live in Colorado. But if you live in Colorado, you're like, oh, my God, this is a bloody chapter of Colorado history. So I learned something interesting about that. One of the uh, perpetrators of the massacre was this veteran who had uh, served and been at the battle of or the massacre at Wounded Knee as well. And then came and was part of the massacre at Ludlow. So this is a dude who's just perfectly fine with gutting down civilians. Oof. But in that instance, the miners unionized and they said, hey, you are offering us a 25% pay cut. We're going to say no. And so the governor of Colorado hired a private army run by his brother to come shoot them. And the women and the children too. Yeah. On uh, Orthodox Easter – because many of the striking families were from Eastern Europe and celebrated Orthodox Christianity, and which uh, was a six-foot blizzard in that part of Colorado that year. Wow. And most of the people who died died of smoke inhalation because their tents were burned. Then we had later on, a few years later, the Battle of Blair Mountain, which was a massive event where the mine workers unionized, which was against the rules. And so there were shootouts in the streets of these small t mining towns, coal mining towns in West Virginia that resulted in the, well, Billy Mitchell, who later led raids during World War II, sending in marauder bombers to do recon. One of them crashed and like all sorts of things. The, uh, the army... National Guard fired mustard gas shells on the miners. And later that was used. One of them that didn't go off was brought forward as evidence as a treason charge. But in both of these, the the sides of the, the strike breakers, the sides of the private armies and the sides of the mine owners won because all these people who were tried for treason, including that character who was at Wounded Knee, you know, they were tried for treason, they were found guilty, and then they lived the rest of their lives with no consequences for their actions. 
Can I give you a tiny personal anecdote related to this? Sure. So I actually took a public speaking course in college. It was the last class of my senior year. And all throughout college, I grew up in the American South and I went to college in Colorado and I always got a lot of flack for my accent and for coming from Georgia because Mm -hmm. people just could not fathom that I might be a Democrat (laughs) from Georgia. So in this public speaking class, we had to give an informational 10-minute talk. So I gave my talk about the unionization of West Virginian miners and their adoption of communistic ideals and Mm -hmm. how the American South was one of the most liberal places for workers. And it's the origins of communist thought in America. They were inspired by the Red Revolution in Russia. Yeah. So I gave this 10-minute talk and I gave this entire lecture about exactly what you've been talking about and how the term rednecks comes from the red bandanas that the miners wore around their necks to symbolize that they were unionized. Yeah. And so I gave this talk and the class lost their minds. They were so mad Mm. at me. Yeah. At me for shaking up their beliefs about the American South, there was literally so much prejudice about being a Southerner in this class full of Coloradans. Anyway, I just, I find it fascinating because we do see Benny and the mining kids unionize. What I find most interesting about that is the very last line, which you read off, which was, that the empire is so evil. There's things besides the empire that are still evil. And Tex says, unfortunately, yes. However, there are many like us as well. And that is something. And what they were able to do, the Bad Batch, they show up and they're like, Benny, you stole our ship. And Benny's like, look, uh, yes, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> they let Benny go. Because Benny had no other recourse. Benny didn't know that there was another way out. They probably would have taken Benny with them if he had asked. I'm shocked that they didn't. And because especially he's still the low man on the totem pole for in, you know, the youth gang. Yeah, Drake with his cool face tattoos is number one. And anyone else, anyone else who's evil could come to this planet and be like, hey, you're a bunch of unionized kids. You need an adult and then take over just as Mako did. But the Bad Batch forgave Benny. They forgave Drake. They're like, we don't have any quarrel with you guys. We just want all the pieces of our ship and a little bit of, you know, all the Ipsium we mined and we're going to bounce and let you live your lives. Well, because the Bad Batch has the empathy and kindness to know This is a bunch of starving, scrabbling kids who were trying to survive, and you can't get mad at them for doing what they had to do to live. So I think it's actually very beautiful that they didn't punish Benny or be mad at him or need to even have some kind of grand recourse. They're like, listen, we get it. We've also done some kind of morally questionable things to survive. No harm, no foul, right? And they, they leave... The town formerly known as Mako Town better than they found it because now the kids have a taste of equality. Yeah. They're not going to let some other adult come in and take away their freedom. They now have the right to self-determination. They do. And I'm I'm finding more and more parallels between the Battle of Blair Mountain and the Bad Batch because what ended up breaking the Union strikers at the Battle of Blair Mountain was themselves. They went they they buried their weapons and they they went back to work because the National Guard was called in. 
And because this was 1920, many of the miners had served in the military during World War I, and they would be firing on fellow soldiers. And that's something that the Bad Batch, all throughout particularly season two, has had to be very aware of, is that those are our brothers. Mm -hmm. We can't kill them. We have to like find our different path, but we can't kill them. And in this instance, it's like the Bad Batch is, they're not looting. They're not taking. They're not part of the system of exploitation anymore. Mm -hmm. And that is the liberation that they are offering these kids, as well as every other thing that they've been a part of, is that they're not actually like here to make a bunch of money. They're just trying to survive. Yeah, they're just like the mining kiddos. They are. The, everyone's just out here to live a full and satisfying life. And because I'm seeing critiques of capitalism everywhere, I think retrieval is an obvious critique of capitalism. Mm -hmm. The 1% guzzles the resources and exploits the 99% who are literally just trying to live a good life and do good and be thought well of and absolutely could if Mako wasn't hoarding the if wealth. If Mako would take his foot off of mm -hmm. their necks, then they would be doing great, yeah. right? So the 1% has no interest in being good. Mm -mm. But the Bad Batch is traveling around lifting people out of oppression and trying to give them a chance just at a good life. And they have the capacity to enact their will on people and choose not to. Yes. Even without moral compass echo. Even without my boy, my boy echo. So speaking of people with faulty moral compasses, what is Sid's deal? What was that? So they call her up. They're like, hey, our ship got stolen. We need a ride. That's it. We literally need one singular. Pick us up from school, mom. We have tons of Ipsium for you. And Sid's like, ah, sucks to suck. And they're like, Th we're doing this job for you. What do you think is going on? Did she get into some kind of really big trouble and they called her in the middle of it? And she's like, listen, I literally, like Roland Durand came back and took back over my parlor. I don't know, but it's really lame because like she does owe them a lot. She owes them everything. I mean, I know they have screwed up some jobs for her. There have been points in the Bad Batch when they have been the bad at jobs batch, and I respect that. However, they have brought her truly a lot of wealth and got her out of a lot of life-threatening situations. Well, at the beginning of season two, or the end of season one, they're paid off with her. They're square. Yes. Because of Omega. And then Tech saves her life. Yes, and they saved her parlor. So she owes them double, and she's like, no, can't get a ride for you. And they're like, we're going to starve out here. I glossed over it because it was like 11 o'clock at night when I was watching The Crossing, and I had a lot of notes to take. But even Omega cannot appeal to her better nature. And traditionally, Omega has been, besides Tech, the only one who can get through that scaly lizard armor <laughs> around her Grinch heart. 
So she she's leveling up her Grinch heart levels, but um, her heart is four sizes too small for real. <laughs> but the real character growth in this one is the relationship between Omega and Tech. Oh. Yeah. Because that is like the main thing. Hunter is doing his great stuff. He's telling Tech, you need to go apologize to Omega. Even Wrecker tells Tech he needs to apologize to Omega. Everybody is peak family drama, especially in The Crossing. But Hunter is peak daddy. (laughs) He's like, Tech, go apologize to your sister. Omega, I am literally shielding you from space gazelles. Wrecker... Keep being you. Record, stop complaining and stop eating your food so fast. I know you're hungry because you're big. We are not going through the McDonald's drive-thru, not even for a singular black coffee for myself. We're not doing another lap through. I just, I have to say, Hunter swooping out of the volcano to rescue Omega. Oh my God, 15 out of 10. I feel like his weapons of choice are the grappling hook and the knife. And that's... That's a real move. Like if you're building out a little, I'm I'm an ex-clone, I'm a specialist, I have like mega senses, like what are your weapons? Do you use a sniper rifle? He's like, no, a knife and a grappling hook. If we had a podcast where we could swear, I would have some choice words about that. Suffice to say, it rhymes with mad bass. <laughs> Heck anyway, yes. anyway, heck yes. Tech and Omega, delightful. So Omega is still struggling with Echo leaving, and it seems like the Bad Batch in some form or another is generally okay with it. And I, I wonder if that is because either they've worked with a bunch of clones who they've watched die in front of them, who are their brothers, or they have more of Django's coldness programmed into them, or perhaps some of their gene editing was, hey, when your like, brothers die next to you, you need to be okay with that. You need to not fall into PTSD from watching literal clones of yourself die next to you. I actually read that a little differently. I thought the Bad Batch, the remaining squad, might be a little embarrassed that Echo feels this call to something higher. And they don't? Yeah. Perhaps... There's an irritability in The Crossing that is very noticeable. I actually love that it's not that Echo poofed out of existence. You can feel that he's not there. Everyone is sniping at everybody. Mm-hmm. The The gang is visibly smaller, just being down one character. Which is surprising because Echo was, you know, barely there to begin with. <laughs> just our pallid poverty baby. <laughs> just a little piece of spaghetti. He's just the reason they, they always have to go through TSA. One white. <laughs> noodle of a boy (laughs) (laughs) but the yes they without him kind of serving as a direction as a rudder as a sea anchor a calming force yeah they they aren't able to like like tech and wrecker are always yelling at each other and then comes the moment where without someone to defend her tech turns on omega and says i don't know why you have a problem with this what is your issue And that is the wrong thing to say to like a 10-year-old. And everyone's like, why did you say that to a 10-year-old? And Tech's like, I genuinely forgot that she wasn't like part of the Bad Batch 100%. So I think that's actually really beautiful because Mm -hmm. when Tech goes back into the mining shaft to apologize to Omega and he sees that she's extracting, you know, the Ipsium that she can reach, he has some words with her and they don't have their full apology yet, but he's like... You found this amazing cavern of the purest grade Ipsium we've seen so far. 
I'm going to go grab the extra vials and you can extract all of this. And she's like, do you trust me to do that? Mm -hmm. And he says, there is no doubt in my mind that you can do this. So that's the flip side is that, yes, he was not empathetic to the 12 year old, but on the flip side, he trusts her to be a full part of this squad and respects her. So there's two more moments in that. One of them is, uh, I'll, I'll do the, the second one first. It's when, at the beginning of the second episode, Omega says, oh, I can track Gonki. Oh my God, I love this scene. Okay, so th they're fixing up this speeder to try to get to like the spaceport on the other side of the planet, yeah. right? And Omega's like, oh my God, Gonki, he's still on the Marauder. Tech says, yeah, he's gone forever. And Omega's like, no, I can track him. And Tech blinks and clears his brain and says, oh, ingenious. Yes, try tracking his binary reference number. And I'm like, oh my God, amazing. You are lifting up this 12-year-old and validating that her idea is a good idea and that is good parenting. And not only that, it's in the way that Tech can. Because Tech really doesn't have the capacity to interact with Omega in any way other than the way he interacts. Like, Tech has had to move through his life, his short life, as a bad batcher. And he understands that he'll say something smart and then Wrecker will either do it or not if he gives Wrecker clean enough instructions. He'll tell Crosshair what to do. Crosshair will figure it out. He'll give Hunter advice, but Hunter will take his own counsel. He can't communicate with anybody. The way he communicates with with Omega is by giving her homework. At the beginning of this season, he's like, memorize this, memorize that. It, when we're hanging out with Hera, he says, you, you can't fly until you've memorized the specs for the, the Marauder. Text love language really is homeschooling. It is. And so at the very end of the first episode, the very end of the crossing, they've been yeeted out through the underwater river and are in the underwater lagoon. And Omega is saying, I don't know why you're okay with all this. How are you okay with the Marauder being gone, with Echo being gone? And Tech says, I don't process these things the way you do. He says, I don't know how I should care about change. It is part of life. Yeah, but rest assured, I feel it. I may process moments and thoughts differently, but it doesn't mean that I feel any less than you. And I think that that's really important in terms of the conversation they have. I recognized so much the way I was raised, my relationship with my dad between Omega and, and Tech, because my dad never functionally apologized for anything that he, he caused me harm for. And he has some big things to apologize for. I mean, I got things to apologize for too. But when I was a kid... The only thing that would actually be meaningful was my would be my dad trusting me to like complete a job. Mm. And what's funny is that like he definitely didn't 100% of the time. It was never like a cathartic thing. But when he did, it did feel good, even though it was just like, you know, go move, you know, 20 loads of firewood. And I'm like, oh, cool. You trust me to do that myself. Mm -hmm. And that's something that was actually meaningful to a kid. And, and that's can, a gift that Tech gives to Omega. It is, especially because he's trusting her with power tools to do something extremely dangerous, which like to this day, I don't think my dad would trust me with it. I'm like 36 <laughs> years old. He's like, you good with that? I'm like, yeah, I know how to use a nail gun, dad. <laughs> 
What I loved about the Tech and Omega conversation, I just wrote down hashtag neurodiversity. (laughs) Well, so I looked into that as well. And there's various... because we're we're kind of on the heels of what episodes are out, so there's no settled discourse about if tech tech's neurodivergence. But I feel like he's not that neurodivergent. He's just really, really smart. He recognizes that change is part of life. He also recognizes that he can put that away and has kind of come to like the philosophical term, the philosophical understanding that, Change is part of life. I can only affect the things I can affect. Mm -hmm. Because Tech is genuinely smart enough to hack his way into like a Star Destroyer and his life still kind of sucks. I mean, Anakin in The Phantom Menace was the only human who could pod race. And Tech apparently is the only human being who can riot race. Yeah. And he doesn't even have the force. He doesn't have the force. Tech doesn't need the force. He just outthinks his problems. But that doesn't make him a superhero. It makes him someone who is still wrestling with the same problems everyone else does. He just has a different set of solutions for them. I actually disagree. I think Tech is a cerebral superhero. Okay. I think that is his superpower, right? I mean, that's obvious. He's he's in the Bad Batch for a reason. He is different than other clones for a reason. But I actually think he's the MVP of Mm -hmm. the Bad Batch. Yeah. The only one who has superpowers in my book is Wrecker, who actually is a (laughs) Jedi. He just doesn't know it. Please return to our recap of Rampage from season one of The Bad Batch if you would like to dig in more. I want to say that I actually got baptism vibes from the Tech and Omega conversation, and I Mm. thought that was really beautiful. They fall into this river, they cross through the water, and finally, only after they are drenched by the water and emerge, are they able to have a really important conversation about being a family, about how tech perceives the world, about how upset Omega is, and then she is finally able to get some closure about Echo leaving, because tech is able to finally communicate, and it takes him like three tries, but he gets there. He took the scenic route. He got there in the end. He says, Echo made a choice. Crosshair made a choice. I have to respect that they are allowed to make their own choices. And I think that's a lesson that Omega hadn't ever gotten yet. That is also a lesson that she can only receive from tech. Because as an intellectual person, as the cerebral superpower, tech sees the world in a way of if everyone did what I told them, everything would go so much smoother. But he has to recognize, and presumably from growing up in a tube next to Wrecker, he's like, so people don't always pay attention to when I (laughs) tell them stuff. And so he has had to come to terms with that. He has to tell Omega, hey, people aren't going to do what you want them to do. People are never going to do what you want them to do. And there's nothing you can do to change that. So change is a part of life, Mm -hmm. but it's not, you don't have control over the change. So you have to kind of accept it. I think their conversation in the lagoon was one of the softest moments of the Bad Batch so far. Mm -hmm. I thought it was just gorgeous. I think it's really beautiful to create the time and space where you've just got two characters 
and everything's been stripped away. They're soaking wet. They're waiting on their brothers to join them. And you create this really safe container for them to have a big conversation. And we don't see that enough in TV and we don't see it enough with siblings and we don't see it enough with families. And to get it felt like transformative. It was so beautiful. And contrast with the experience Hunter and Wrecker were having, which we had seen them have before. <laughs> so funny. They reach, they reach this bottomless pit and, you know, Tech's on the phone with them and he's like, all right, so jump off this, hold your breath. And Wrecker's like, are you kidding me? Again? <laughs> Again. <laughs> they finally get to the the rest of the Bad Batch shows up at the lagoon and, hey, are you okay? You got the Ipsium and Wrecker just like lying face down in the gravel, like puts a thumbs up. He's like, oh, got it. <laughs> the last thing that I super duper loved about their little conversation is that when they're in the cavern and Hunter and Racker join them, they're like, great, we can blast our way out of this cavern, but what are we going to do next? We can't get to Echo. We don't have the Marauder. And Tech's like, we'll figure it out. We always figure it out. It's what we do, mm -hmm. right? And then when Sid turns them down and is a huge jerk bag, everyone's like, well, now what are we going to do? And Omega looks at Tech mm -hmm. and she says, we'll figure it out just like we always do. And obviously that's great, but what I really love about that is that out of all of the characters in the Bad Bash squad, Tech is the one who it would make the most sense if he was always doubting the Bad Batch because he's got the brain, he's mm -hmm. got the statistics, he can run the numbers, he knows just how dicey everything is all the time. And he's the character who has the most faith in the Bad Batch. Yeah. I think that is because he knows, I mean, he statistically, they haven't died yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, he knows that the numbers have been dicey and every time they have figured out a way. But I think it's really beautiful that he can be that person for Omega who says, I have the facts and the facts are, we're great. Yeah. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll How figure something cool. out. How cool. Yeah. I love that. I love that too. Do you have any Easter eggs for us? Not really. This episode, I've been reading Heir to the Empire, which is the first Legends book. It takes place uh, by Timothy Zahn and introduces the character of Thrawn, but it doesn't take place on a desert planet. It takes place on a jun jungle planet. There's not much in desert planets, I think, in Legends or anywhere else, I think because so much of the Star Wars movies is filmed on desert planets because that's actually a really easy scene to grab. You just go to Tunisia, go to Arizona. Having like a crazy jungle or something is a little less likely or temples or underground stuff. These mines are, mining is such an interesting thing as far as labor relations and child relations. And I think it's really worth a deep dive for everyone to see where your stuff comes from and how the people who get it to you are treated. There are some really cool websites that you can check out to see the supply chain of your favorite stuff, how it gets from a bunch of molecules into products, mm -hmm. into a thing in your house. Those are really worth checking out. The only Easter egg I had is that we don't see a lot of food in Star Wars, and I feel like we saw the most food we've ever seen in Star Wars because <laughs> Mako was cramming it down his cram hole. He had like 
It was disgusting. He was sitting there. With like terrines of baked beans. Yeah. He has like a soup to one side that he's scooping with one hand. He has a skewer of like meat cutlets in the other hand. They're not even getting into his mouth. He's just smearing it on his face. Yeah. Yeah. They really went out of their way to make this very much a bad guy who you love to hate and he has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Even Benny, I have in my notes, I'm like, oh man, now we have to feel bad for Benny because it turns (laughs) out he's just a little kid who just wants to be top earner. Now we got to feel bad for Benny and the Jets. But we don't have to, ah, 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 but we don't (laughs) have to feel bad for Mako at all, which is a, it's a caricature and it's a disservice to the people who do utilize child labor to reach their ends. Like child labor is so horrible. It is the worst thing because you are instilling this sense of authoritarianism and duty into children at a young age. You're completely rewiring their reward structure. You're taking away the possibility of joy and replacing it with exploitation. That is what child labor does. And so we look at it in terms of caricature, not recognizing that there are bills in the U.S. being passed right now to make it legal again. Yes. So it's it's a caricature, but it's also fundamentally an evil thing. And it's 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 a travesty making this to be such a villain when it is something which is much closer to home than we thought. I think that has been a huge theme for me in Bad Batch season two, especially What we saw with Mako was a microcosm of the kind of cruelty and oppression that is spreading across the galaxy due to Mm -hmm. the Empire. And I think we're supposed to use this as a shorthand of how bad things already are for regular people in the galaxy. And now the Empire is institutionalizing that oppression and making it not only okay, but expected. That is the point of the Empire is spreading pain. Yeah. Because that empowers the Sith. Yeah. But, I mean, this is Star Wars. So I think we circle back to that really pivotal Star Wars theme at the very end of the episode when Tech says, yeah, there are a lot of people like Mako. There is casual cruelty in the galaxy. We're seeing institutionalized cruelty in the galaxy. There is a lot of bad out there. But there are many more people who are like us. Mm -hmm. And that is that core Star Wars, light versus dark, hope versus despair. I mean, that gives me the Star Wars feeling. It does. Something that gives me the Star Wars feeling, though, I don't know if this is because we're actually kind of on the heels of the broadcasts of these episodes but they feel more politically pressing than some of the other stuff. Because I had to like go back in my head watching Clone Wars and be like, how did I feel in 2007, you know? I know, right? The Ahsoka Hunted arc came out in 2011. How did I feel in 2011? But how I feel in 2023 is, hey, these episodes are on point with what is going on in the world. Last week's episodes, the week before. I know. It's all related to things that are going on. And it shows that, Science fiction is a tool mm-hmm. and it is a wonderful storytelling tool for what is going on, how to make interesting characters, put them in interesting situations. And you can do whatever you want in science fiction. There are absolutely no rules. And it lets you tell really compelling stories for really compelling people. Yeah. It lets you point back to the reality that people are living in and and let them say, oh, my God. 
my visceral reaction to this was horror. And this is happening down the street from me. Exactly. And I should do something about it. On that note, is it time to pick the baddest baddie minus Mako of them all? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do some Baywatch. Let's do some Baywatch. Baywatch. So for under cave lagoon side beach bay watch, who is your bay? <laughs> Who's my lagoon watch? Who's your lagoon underground lagoon watch? <laughs> my runner up is Hunter. He is daddy. Mm-hmm. He's my daddy. <laughs> I would call him daddy. <laughs> I love him. Hunter could swoop across a volcano cavern on a grappling hook and save me any day. (laughs) But I'm going to go with Omega. Mm, Okay. Omega sharing her ration bar and also the profit reports is actually what caused Benny to turn against the only father figure he had ever known. Yeah. And he was such a suspicious kid. If he had in any way, shape, or form sense that Omega was trying to manipulate him, he would have turned on her. He would have run away. But there was this undeniable kindness and selflessness pouring out of her eyes, and she actually makes him trust her. And he's the least trusting kid I've ever seen. Yeah, he's he's profoundly damaged. He's deeply damaged, but he, I mean, I think he's got a hopeful future. And I think Omega's absolute selflessness was what turned the tide for this episode. So I'm going with Omega. How about you? Definitely Mako. <laughs> no, it's Tech. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little nervous there. <laughs> Sam is a empirically proven antagonist apologist. So like So are you. So anyway, Tech uh is great. And Tech is played as if he was a genuinely smart character who does have the same trouble with communicating with people that someone who is genuinely smart would, which is I can't make you follow these leaps of logic. I can't make you follow these leaps of emotion that I'm able to make because Intelligence is a lot of internal shorthands. Mm. It is taking one thing, transforming its problem space into a different solution. And for tech, he's able to do that with emotions as well. And he's able to transfer that information to Omega. Mm-hmm. And that is, he, he's an icon for intelligent people. He is the moment. This is the way intelligent people operate as far as thinking ahead, being down on themselves or having jokes that are off color. And because they don't know, they, they can't tell if you're keeping up or not. And you're, you just kind of spit it into the universe. And if people do catch your jokes, they'll fall over laughing because like, oh, I, I caught that one. And you're like, yeah, that's one of that's one percent of the jokes I've I've laid out. I'm literally the funniest person in the room, but no one's smart enough to keep up. Exactly. What a what a power play. That's tech, but that's also the ability to explain yourself requires the real intelligence there. And he is able to do it. He yeah. is able to explain himself to Omega in a way that she can find meaningful. He had the right words for her at the time. And that is 
incredibly valuable. And there are so few icons of intelligence. It's often thought of as like a corrupting influence. We have a strong anti-intelligentsia bent, you know, since the 50s across all of civilization. And it's there are so few smart heroes and so many more lucky heroes or like superheroes or tough heroes. Or scrappy heroes or determined heroes. Uh, yeah. I mean, like we've been watching John Wick lately. And John... <laughs> John Wick is not particularly intelligent. He's just a man of single-minded determination. And like, okay, cool. That's a cool trait to have in a hero. It's a superhuman level of determination. But the intelligent heroes are uh, villains. You know, the one who outsmarts everyone is the villain. You have the Riddler. You have the Joker. And, and that's – there are so many people who are out there who are incredibly smart, who are pulling things together, who deserve trust and respect – but have the humility to not toot their own horn because they're like, it's not really my place to be. And that is the core defining aspect of the Bad Batches arc in this arc is they have humility. Yeah. And Tech is the avatar of that. And Tech is also literally the only one who actually took the time to sit down and explain why it's okay that Echo left. Everyone knew Omega was upset and Tech is the only one who did something about it. So like, major props for that too. Yeah, because the rest of the Bad Batch was just going to not talk about it. Because mm -hmm. Wrecker talks about food and uncomfortability <laughs> and Hunter just doesn't talk. <laughs> I see why you think he's zaddy. He is my zaddy. <laughs> Good Baywatch. I love them all. I especially love these two. All right, Sam, we are precipitously running out of Bad Batch Season 2. What are we watching next week? Next week, we are watching Metamorphosis and The Outpost, episodes 11 and 12, which we're very near the end of Season 2, and then who knows what we're going to do. So last week at Star Wars Celebration, it was announced that there will be a third and final season of The Bad Batch. So at some point in our podcast future, we are going to have to circle back and we're not going to be able to do the entire podcast in perfect chronology, which is... I mean, that besmirches my honor. Yeah. It's a, we'll, we'll be okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll have reordered the episodes so you can listen to them in order and they just won't make any sense. That would be amazing. <laughs> As always, you can find us on social media, wherever get your social media and your Skywalkers, wherever they grow up on all the podcast networks. And uh, you can also follow us on Patreon. We've been going through the Tartakowski 2003 2D Clone Wars for Lines of Spice Run, which is a lot of fun. That starts at as low as $3 a month, and we really appreciate your support. We really appreciate your listenership and talking to people about Star Wars and just being the best you can be as a Star Wars character in this crazy mixed up world of ours. Yeah. Normally we say send this episode to someone, but you should send this episode to yourself. Yeah. We think you're great. We like you. Remember to rate us five stars if you're listening on Spotify, drop us a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and tune in next week, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.